now the podcast starts. Hello, dear listener. This is T.D. Velasquez, but as always, you can call me Dan. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might have realised that we're not really very good at the whole new series thing. Every time we try and launch a new series of the podcast, something happens which prevents us from putting out episodes regularly, um, and the whole thing becomes kind of silly. Um, that's happened again, so we relaunched a few episodes ago, as I hope you'll know, um, and then I, I had a health crisis in my family, my mother became very ill, um, and in fact, all but the first episode of this series so far have been up loaded from hospital. Um, I'm pleased to say that my mum is home now and much better but still requires a great deal of care um, which is mainly coming from me so I'm not going to have a lot of time to devote to this podcast um, going forward so therefore episodes are going to come out irregularly for a while. However we still have a few um, goodies recorded. I just need to find time to edit and upload them um, and a few other special things um, that we will drag from the archives as well so that you have some content coming out. Um, so this episode that you're about to listen to, you may have heard part of this interview with a very special guest before. We released it last year to tie in with the centenary of the birth of the great writer and a favourite in these parts, Nigel Neal. The interview is between myself and the wonderful and renowned horror author Simon Clarke, who I'm very pleased to be able to call my friend, discussing the scripts that Nigel Neal wrote for the Quatermass series. On this podcast, we've done episodes about his uh, contribution to the Halloween series, which was Halloween 3, and his kind of his TV masterpiece, um, much overlooked masterpiece during Barty's party. We did a missed classic about that. You can find those episodes if you look back along our feed. Um, and we were hoping to do a big special about his um, his Quatermass series and character, um, and that's why we re we recorded this interview, um, which is going to be part of that. However, for not dissimilar reasons to the troubles we're having now. We were never able to record the complete content for that planned episode. So instead what I'm going to do is release this interview in a, a couple of parts and then um, hopefully later in the year we'll do further episodes about Quatermass. Um, so um, to put it into context, um, Nigel Neal is one of those guys who can be credited with inventing television drama and particularly inventing the mixture of science fiction and horror on television. Um, in 1953, a serial he wrote called The Quatermass Experiment was broadcast live um, and essentially changed the face of television. It's a terrifying story. Um, and kind of still quite original in many ways, even though it kind of borrows from and subverts a number of familiar kind of science fictional tropes of the time. That serial was so successful that uh, two years later, 
a sequel serial was made, Quatermass 2. Um, and three years after that, a third serial, Quatermass and the Pit, was, was then produced. And then the character was rested for two decades before making a belated reappearance in a new serial at the end of the 1970s. Um, the reason um, it's important to give that context is um, because... That context is why now is a good time to release this interview in which the renowned horror author Simon Clarke enthuses about the scripts of those initial three um, live Quatermass serials um, the, the, in those days of TV with no home media available. Um, programs were rarely repeated, couldn't be released for home consumption of purchase so instead the scripts were released as books which you could buy um, in bookshops and that's how Simon discovered these serials which for a long time were hard to uh, find the initial serial The Quatermass Experiment doesn't exist in its entirety only the first two episodes were recorded um, I believe they're still on YouTube I'll put links in the show notes um, Quatermass 2 exists in its entirety but was not released commercially for a very long time until 2005 I think um, and Quatermass and the Pit was released on video in an edited down form so um, in a way the purest experience of these stories was to read the scripts um, and that is what Simon wanted to talk about um, and the timing is good because whereas last year we were marking the centenary of the writer Nigel Neal, uh, this year is the 70th anniversary of the transmission of the Quatermass experiment. And this um, milestone is being marked on the 9th of September, which is uh, hopefully nine days after this episode drops. Um, on the 9th of September, there is going to be a live stage performance of the Quatermass Experiment scripts at Alexandra Palace in London, which is the um, which was rather the BBC studio from which the original serial was transmitted in 1953. Um, it's now being staged as a one-off live reading. The um, the cast is remarkable. Um, it has Mark Gatiss as the lead character, Professor Bernard Quatermass, um, and the wonderful James Swanton, um, who was terrifying as the demon in Rob Savage's Host, as well as a number of other films, and is a kind of specialist monster actor, and also very well versed in the history of this character and series, as you will hear if you listen to him talking about um, the Quatermass Experiment uh, 1955 film by Hammer Productions. He discusses that on the Evolution of Horror podcast and I'll put that link in the show notes. The cast also includes Kevin McNally, um, Alice Lowe um, and uh, Toby Haydock who I believe has adapted the script for the stage um, and is uh, himself as well as a great actor a real expert on the whole history of Quatermass as a phenomenon um, 
So, again, I'll put a link in the show notes to this one-off production. If you can get a ticket and you're in the London area, get along and see it because it's for one night only, folks. Um, If you can't make it, though, maybe it's a good idea to check out the original script books if you can find them. They're still knocking around. They've not been reprinted for a long time but they are available second-hand, and hopefully you can read them. They are quite a remarkable read, as you will hear now when Simon Clarke discusses them. Um, So we'll we'll cut to the interview now. Um, Normally in these kind of things we play a trailer for the series or film being discussed. That's not really appropriate in this case when the serial doesn't really exist and we're talking about the scripts only. But what we will do is um, play the original theme music that was used on the series, the stock uh, theme music, which was a recording of Mars, the Bringer of War by Gustav Holst. Um, And then later in the episode, you will hear the stock piece of music that was used um, at the end of every episode of the Quatermass experiment and Quatermass 2. Music crashes in, or crash in music, as I believe it says in the scripts. Um, I hope you'll enjoy that. Um, In our next episode after this, again, Simon Clark will be back, um, and he and I will be discussing Nigel Neal's later Quatermass publication, the novelisation of the 1979 serial. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this chat. after dawn, the first manned rocket in the history of the world takes off from the Taruma Range, Australia. The three observers see on their scanning screens a quickly receding Earth. The rocket is guided from the ground by remote control as they rise through the ozone layer, the stratosphere, the ionosphere, beyond the air. They are to reach a height of 1,500 miles above the Earth and there learn what is to be learned. For an experiment is an operation designed to discover some unknown truth. It is also a risk. When it is 1,400 miles up, all contact with the rocket is suddenly lost. So I am delighted to be joined now by my old friend Simon Clark. The listener may not know that Simon and I go back a few years. I've been privileged to work on stage productions of some of his stories um, in recent years. He is the renowned author of novels like Vampiric and Blood Crazy and The Night of the Triffids, the official sequel to the John Wyndham classic novel. And I got in touch with him and said, would you like to come on the podcast? And he said, um, yes. And I said, what would you like to talk about? And he said, well, I'd like to talk about the Quatermass scripts. So that's what we're going to talk about now. Hello, Simon. 
Hello, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thanks for having me aboard. I'm delighted to be here and speaking to you. No, oh, it's it's a thrill. Thank you so much. Um, and I, I'm so glad that you suggested talking about the the Nigel Neal Quatermass scripts because uh, I love Neil and I love the Quatermass productions, but I'd never actually read the scripts before. Even though I I, ha- I have one of them, I own uh, Quatermass too that, that a friend got for me, but I'd never actually sat down and, re- and read it before. And because of your suggestion, I did, and I, I'd be really keen to to talk to you about how you came to the scripts and and what their effect was on you because obviously the original tv series were made in the 1950s the scripts were published in the early 60s uh, a few years in advance of production of the movie Quatermass and the Pit and because in obviously this was an age of tv where you know things were not repeated too often and people didn't have videos or certainly not dvds or anything like that there wasn't i i I think for most audiences there in that kind of 10 year gap between the tv version of quatermass and the pit and the film adaptation the only way to discover quatermass anew would have been to read the scripts um and uh, uh I wonder, was that something similar to, to your discovery of the scripts? How did it happen for you, Simon? Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose it was like most people uh, who discovered Quatermass. I watched the, the, the Hammer version of Quatermass and the, the Pit, which I saw when I was probably about 15 or 16 and, and loved that and had such a big impact on me. That's probably about then when I thought, well, I want to be involved with this kind of thing. You know, I want to tell stories like Quatermass and the Pit. I mean, I, I even re- wrote a novel called Hobbs, no, not Hobbs Lane, but Hobbs Wood, which was obviously a, a certificate inspiration then. It was never published. Um, I, I wrote that when I was about 17, and uh, I think I've still got it somewhere. But you could, yeah, Hobbs Lane, Hobbs Wood, you know, the, the Quatermass uh, influences there already. Well, you know what? You wouldn't be alone there, Simon, even if you did get it published. I think lots of, of authors have... Uh, uh, have taken the the the, the name Hobbs Lane or, or, or you know taken that kind of inspiration even the uh in the John Carpenter film in the Mouth of Madness it's actually set in a town called Hobbs End for instance oh, right. yeah. um yeah. but the, the film itself isn't anything like Quatermass and the Pit but the name was obviously kind of settled on because it had, it had lodged in the brains of people yeah a terrific name I mean obviously you know Hob as, as we, we learn from Quatermass and the Pit Hob is the the, the old English name for, for the devil yeah um, so, so I saw that film absolutely loved it and you know I think that you know it was life-changing to a certain extent that I thought well I want to you know be involved in in telling stories in that way but I didn't really know what at the time you know how, how it would be I, I, th- I was even thinking oh, I'd like to work in film you know you know be a sound man or something you know work in the sound or editing you know I, I didn't really know what it was I wanted to do with them be involved with uh, the, the system of telling these wonderful stories and it was on a later I became you know it clicked I wanted to become a writer but actually for discovering the scripts I'd seen the yeah I'd seen the the film it's possible that I'd saw some of the other Hammer films like Quit of Us 2. I'm just thinking Simon for the for the listener um you were a teenager in the 70s weren't you so was it made was was it on the TV that you saw the film rather than obviously you would have been a, too young when it was out at the cinema it, it, it was on television. It was on. I mean, I, mean, I remember 
seen not all of it, but part of it. My memory is now of it because I went to uh, uh, college, Whitwood Mining and Technical College, and I came home. We used to finish early one day a week, and I came home, put the TV on, and for some reason, Quatermass and the Pit was on uh, television, which is a bit odd for a quite an intense story to be shown perhaps three o'clock in the afternoon on right. terrestrial TV. Then there'd have been only three channels. So it was one of the three channels I saw it on. So I played the last half of it and thought, oh, you know, this was just so, so wonderful, this. Um, and it was only much later, it would have been in the 1980s, just as video was becoming widely available, um, that I discovered the scripts. So I hadn't, I'm pretty sure that not much of the Quatermass TV material was available on video. I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't at all. Possibly one or two of the Hammer films were, but I hadn't got the, the films at that point. Um, but uh, myself and my family went on holiday. I was married by this time with a young child and um, happened to be wandering around Withensy Market, that little indoor market. And there was a bookstall and thought, oh, have a look. And, and by sheer chance, very, very happy chance, all three of the uh, Quatermass scripts were there right in front of me on, on the stall, probably. I had to have a look in the book and see the prices. I played 10 pence each, something like that. Right, wow. I remember you know, picking these uh, old, uh, these books up with the, the orange covers, you know, these penguin uh, scripts, and thinking, you know, it's one of those moments when you see them and think, oh, am, am I uh, hallucinating here? You know, is this real? You know, are these scripts in front of me? I, I didn't even know they were, they'd been published. Anyway, so I picked them up, saw what they were, bought them, and then read them avidly, no doubt to my family's annoyance, uh, because just putting myself in a book for the next piece. But the, the scripts, reading those, well, they're just a revelation. I mean, they're not back then, you know, I was um, what, probably mid-20s. I wasn't familiar with reading scripts and certainly not writing them. Um, but they were so easy to read and um, just so compelling. And the energy that was contained in those scripts, reading them, I mean, it was just uh, it was fantastic. Like I say, a, a revelation. Yeah, I, I was begin the, uh, you know, the the miserable person or appeared to be sat in the corner and everybody else was out throwing a ball or something in the sunshine on the beach and I was there reading these scripts thinking, well, this is this is wonderful, this is fantastic. So, yeah, the, the, the scripts came probably first for me before the the TV version. Then I do remember getting the Quatermass and the Pit BBC version on video probably mid-80s, probably a year or so later. That came out in the late 80s, yeah, I'm not sure. I think maybe 87. Was it? Yeah, so probably just one or two years after getting the the scripts and reading those, the, the video became available. So I watched that and, and I know it digressing a little bit from the scripts, but again, the, the, the BBC TV version of uh, Quatermass and the Pit was just terrific and uh, you know, I loved it. And for me now it's become the you know the superior version. I prefer that to the to the Hammer version. Perhaps partly because it's it's so much longer. You know, it's almost like reading a novel. The BBC TV version. You can immerse yourself in those six episodes. You know, enter Nigel Neal's world that he created. Yeah, and um, the TV version is a really impressive production because obviously they didn't have the resources um, that the film had, and yet they managed to do so much with what they had. Um, oh. Absolutely. I mean, the I believe the uh, the BBC TV version for, for all six episodes, its budget was twenty twenty seven thousand five hundred pounds, which you know today that that's a, the cost of catering on a 
Yeah, yeah. That's even like a middle-sized budget film, but back then, you know, they got the, the entire six episodes out of that twenty thousand um, pounds, and and created something wonderful. And uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly my my all-time favourite TV series. Uh, you know, of, of Quatermass, and possibly one of my all-time TV film favourites of all time. You know, in, in the top ten, definitely. Oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I don't blame you at all. Um, so, in, in terms of the scripts, um, I actually only read the script of Quatermass 2, because that's the one I own. I'd seen the TV series before. Um, it, uh, the listener may know it came out on DVD um, 15 years or so ago. Um um, so I, I had seen it, but I, I'd never got round to reading it, and I haven't read Quatermass Experiment or Quatermass and the Pit, even though I have. I feel very familiar with Quatermass and the Pit because I have seen the TV series in full. The, the recently released Blu-ray is wonderful, and and also the the film um, is just kind of in my DNA, really. But um, what struck me about the Quatermass two scripts when I read it was. Yes, it, it's hugely readable. It does. I, I feel like uh, it's a strange practice that um, that the scripts were published in a, in a way rather than a novelization, which you know most films or TV shows made um, before the two thousands probably had a novelization tie in. Um, but for some reason, somebody thought, no, we can just put the scripts out. Maybe that was Nigel Neal. Maybe he thought, look, I've already put all my effort into writing the scripts and they're really good. Rather than just write a novel based on them, let's just publish them. And he, there is a note at the start of the script saying, you know, I've adapted this to be easier to read, but please yes. bear in mind that it was written for actors to say and it's written for a, a crew to produce a TV series based on it. Um, having said that, it's it is just uh, very um, uh, engaging to read the the stage directions, as I call them, or the camera directions rather. They don't lean on technical jargon. They're very much about um, creating the place and the atmosphere and and the characters, filling in any uh, detail of the characters' behaviour that you can't get just from the lines. And, of course, I think the dialogue is tremendous, which is always the case pretty much with, with Neil. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. And also it helps that um, Quatermass 2 is, was a particularly ambitious production because a good chunk of the last two episodes takes place in space and they had no budget for that. But of course, um, and and I understand that Neil himself, although he loved the productions in general and he had a very great partnership with the director, Rudolf Cartier, I think he was aware that the money had run out by yes. the end. So so therefore, he, he wasn't really keen that people see the TV version of Quatermass 2. Um, but he's obviously happier for them to read the scripts. And when you read the scripts... Uh, you can, you can. The, the script tells you, you know, they're on an asteroid. They're in spacesuits. The man fires the gun and and is uh, spun off into space. And you can paint all those epic scale pictures in your mind. Whereas yes. maybe they they couldn't do great justice to that on, on the TV. I have to say, I haven't rewatched the TV version after reading the scripts. Yeah, good point that Dan, because. 
when it comes to your own imagination, the, 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 uh, the budget's unlimited. So if you're reading the script of astronauts on an asteroid and somebody firing a gun, I mean, in your mind, you know, that's a huge, you know, vivid image, uh, you know, that you can paint there. And, you know, the, the only limits are your own imagination then, you know, you, you can picture something vast and amazing. But, you know, so often, you know, I'm sure there's Doctor Who fans out there who love Doctor Who like yourself, but, you know, you like watch some of the, the old, uh, like William Hartnell Doctor Who's and now, and, you know, clearly, you know, the budget was limited and, uh, you know, it's like just a battle scenes filmed in the corner of a studio. And I suppose it's the same with the, with Quatermass. I mean, one thing I, I did focus on when, you know, before, you know, we, we did this talk was, Look at the Quatermass experiment. Sorry, the Quatermass experiment. That the first um, story in the Quatermass, um, well, fifties trilogy, and, and and thinking about that a lot. And you, you think, oh, I mean, to go back to the mid nineteen fifties. I mean, the technology was very basic. The studios would have been tiny, but you, you could just imagine. You know, you're there. You're Nigel Neal. And the BBC now rate you as a, a brilliant writer. And, and Nigel Neal, you know, he, he wrote short stories uh, for print. He worked on children's puppet shows, scripting those, and then obviously built up a reputation at the BBC. And the BBC basically wanted to create this vast, huge production for them. Um, and they went to Nigel Neal and said, you know, we want you to do writers a six six part uh, serial you know and we, you know we want, we're going to throw all our money at it and we want it to really be really big and capture the public's you know the, the viewer's imagination but then of course you think back 1953 people had just tiny little televisions um there was only one channel and you know perhaps you or i you know if we were in a similar situation so we think oh yeah we'll do this massive series where it begins in the pyramids in egypt goes to Paris, there's a big shootout on the Eiffel Tower, then they're off to New York, and a big car chase through the streets of New York. And then the BBC must have said to Nigel Neal, oh, well, you've got this studio at uh, Alexander Palace. It wasn't even built as a studio. It's probably the size of a tennis court. Uh, basically, everything has to be filmed in there. We're going to be using cameras that uh, date back to the 1930s because we haven't got new cameras. And the, ca and the camera operator sees a little upside-down image that's all blurry. Um, we'll only have two or three cameras. It's going to go out live because we can't record it. You know, so over to you, uh, Nigel, what are you going to do? And you could have just imagine Nigel Neal thinking, well, you know, it's all those limitations, but you know, the, the, the brilliance of the guy was that there was those tremendous limitations, but he unleashed his imagination and, and wrote this fabulous script um, and, and told a huge story which only occurs which all takes place in this, well, well actually it's to be filmed in this studio, but it, you know, still managed to take the story outdoors, you know, in, in our imaginations anyway. But I mean, the, the six episodes of the Quatermass Experiment, four are missing, but two are available and can be seen on, on YouTube. But you watch them and you can see that they, the, the characters, the, the actors, are all crammed together in little huddles to, to do the little bit of dialogue. Uh, I don't know if I guess a lot of your, your listeners are familiar with the Quatermass experiment that it's about a, a rocket that goes out into space. It's the first manned 
um, space mission. Um, and, and this is before even Sputnik had orbited the Earth four years later. So it was all very new for for the viewers to understand, you know, how do people get into space? Or you put them on a rocket, shoot it at them. And this is a nuclear powered rocket. It goes into space, things go wrong, but they're actually bringing the rocket back and it crashes on Wimbledon Common, close to London. Uh, but when you see the episode, you know, you can tell everything's filmed in basically one little studio. And it's like, you know, there'll be a little bit, little corner where they've got the um, like controlled room with desks and there's the scientists pressing leave, you know, pulling levers and pressing switches. Then they go to Wimbledon Common and, and all this is like a little bit of a, a smashed up house and the door of the rocket. Um, so, so it was all done in such a like compressed way. But, uh, you know, Nigel's Neil's script shines through, you know, they I was looking a little bit, little bit more deeply into the how he'd written the script. Uh, we might have some script writers out there listening to this and, uh, you know, the, they, they'll you know know their own techniques, but you can see Nigel Neal's technique is have, have lots of people asking questions all the time, which are then answered by somebody in authority. Um, also, every couple of pages there's a, there's a crisis. So the you know the, the story begins and, and the rocket's lost and it's going to go drifting off into space and think, oh no, those three astronauts are going to die out there in the, the depths and bleak coldness of space and not coming home. But then Quatermass manages to get remote control of the rocket and brings it back. So, oh, that's going well. But then another problem that the nuclear powered motor is still affixed to the capsule. And, you know, if it crashes into Earth, it's going to be like a nuclear explosion and millions of people will die. So another crisis, they have to separate the, the rocket motor from the capsule. They do that. And they think, oh, you know, that's that's brilliant. You know, they're all going to survive. You know, this, that would be this disaster. But then lo and behold, a page later on the script, the, the capsule's going to have to control again. It might crash into London. Oh, no, you know, London's going to be destroyed and there's going to be lots of people killed. But then they get the control back of the capsule just. And they actually crash land it into Wimbledon, Wimbledon Common, just destroying, uh, partially destroying one person's house. So, again, disaster averted. So... Nigel Neal was brilliant. Every two or three pages is a crisis which must be resolved before then you move on. You know, the, the, the viewer, no doubt, was thinking, oh, the relief, you know, they've got, you know, the spaceship isn't going to crash, are they? You know, the astronauts are going to be alive and so on. Uh, but Nigel Neal employs this cascade system of crises that or crises that just occur one after another, but you have a little bit of breathing space, that's a little bit of comedy almost. You know, like when an old lady rescues a, you know, a, is reunited with a cat or, and um, one of uh, Quatermass's assistants is married to uh, one of the astronauts, Roger uh, Caroon, sorry, Victor Caroon. And so she re reunited with him. Um, but then Victor Caroon starts to change and is something, you know, mutating in some way. So it's, it's just, you know, one dramatic incident after another. But there's always a little interval of something light happening. Mean, something perhaps a little bit amusing. And, and you see Nigel Neal using a lot of his tried and tested techniques throughout the Quatermass stories. Um, Quatermass, Professor Quatermass has always um, comes into conflict with an authority figure. And the authority figure, whether it's Colonel Breen in Quatermass in the pit, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the stiff, stiff upper-lipped army officers say, no, you can't do this. Or it's some government minister saying, oh, no, you can't do this. You've got to stop this. And 
Professor Quatermass is always battling these figures in authority before he can even start to battle the, the alien or whatever uh, crisis faces uh, you know, humanity. Yeah, um, and Neil is kind of brilliant at escalating the the tension and the threats kind of throughout the story. I think he's, um, especially in the first three Quatermass serials, uh, Quatermass stories, he's kind of un, unmatched almost at doing that, I think. It's, it's a real special um, skill. So uh, with that original script, the Quatermass experiment, and the fact that... Um, all these things that that you're relating um, are kind of imprinted on you, I think, from reading the script, aren't they? Um, I mean, as, as you say, we only have the first two episodes in existence, and the film is very different, the Hammer film that was based on the series. So all, all those things that you just mentioned about the, the stages of the rocket separating and all that, they just cut that from the film completely. It's, it's not there at all. Um, which is a shame, but I can understand why they did it when you've only got an hour and ten minutes to tell yes, the, yeah. the whole story. Um, uh, so um, I th what I'd like to ask is, now that in years since you first read the scripts, you've seen the various versions, you've seen the, the, the existing episodes of the Quatermass Experiment and the films and all that, is the strongest impression... Is your strongest impression of the stories still the one that you had, what you saw in your mind when you read the scripts in the first place, or has it kind of been replaced by um, the, the images from the TV versions, etc.? Yeah, I mean, almost like to, to use Quatermass experiment as a, um, a bit of a metaphor. I mean, three astronauts go into space, one astronaut comes back. And we only learn later that the other two astro astronauts have somehow been dissolved in some kind of alien process and they've been they've merged with Victor Caroon, the sole surviving astronaut. So he's got the other two astronauts inside of him, you know, that their minds have, have merged with his. And, and I, I suppose to a certain extent, you know, I read the scripts, first of all, they had a tremendous impact on me. And then I, you know, got to, got to see them on, uh, see the films again or get the DVDs with the surviving scripts or the you know, also the surviving episodes of Quatermass Experiment and also the others. And I suppose there was a kind of process then where the, the script merged with what I saw. So I've got this combination in my head of script and so on. So sometimes I'll be watching an episode and I think, as it comes to the episode, there'll be the... Nigel Neal always ends with a, a lovely line saying, um, crashing music fade to black. <laughs> Yes, I always, I always love that description. You know, just to see to the end of the episode, and as, as we get to the end of the episode, I was thinking to myself, "Well, here it comes! It'll crash in music and fade to black." And yes, it comes. And so, so, so the, the script has combined with my memory now with actually seeing the episodes. So I, I get both going through, and uh, so I certainly recommend if uh, to, to listeners if they get the chance to to read the scripts to to read them because I, I think they're just such a, a you know, pure joy to read and uh, the energy in them. I mean, with you can see all that's wrong with them as well in, in a sense of like the old style of writing. Um, like with the, the Quatermass experiment, 
the first part of it, it's the, the, the characters give little speeches. They're almost not interacting. They'll say, oh, yes, the rocket's coming in at such and such a traje trajectory. We hope it'll land in Australia. Oh, no, it won't land in Australia. So reconnect. And, and so, you know, that you get this actually a block of almost like monologue. Right. And, you know, that was the old way of doing it. But you can see Nigel Neal already. He's evolving. And as the script goes on, it becomes sharper and crisper. And then instead of characters giving little speeches, you know, by the time you get to the end of even the end of episode one, they're interrupting each other. So, you know, so one will be saying, oh, look, the door's opening. And, oh, and then somebody else will come in and say, oh, what's that awful thing coming out through the door? You know, and it's, <laughs> you, know, you must get your heart pounding with excitement. And you can see that Nigel Neal's going through this transition of, you know, he'll play of grown up listening to radio plays where everything had to be described and, you know, it would be plot along to a certain extent. And he began his scripts almost like that. This is a radio plays with pictures, but then it evolves into something else and it becomes much sharper. And it, just this morning, I was looking through the, the scripts and you can tell that back then you get to Quatermass, the, the Quatermass and the Pit script, which isn't easy to say, but the Quatermass <laughs> and the script. <laughs> it's terrible to say Quatermass and the Pit script you can see, <laughs> even on the page it looks different you know they yeah yeah it's it's bish bosh bash you know it's uh you know one one actor speaks a line then another one and then another one it's it's the uh these long speeches have basically gone by then and it's it's much faster much crisper um you know much more like batting the ball back and forth in, in a volley when characters are speaking to each other and you know the, the energy crackles off the page um and uh, it, I mean, again, I'm going to digress a little bit, but Nigel Neal's output, I guess half of it was sort of science fiction, horror, and so on. But then he, he wrote a lot of very mainstream stuff as well, like, um, like an adaptation of Wuthering Heights and so on. So a lot of it wasn't horror, wasn't science fiction. But, uh, and I, was, I suppose, Dan, like me, you know, we were just greedy for more. Nigel Neal's science fiction, aren't we? I mean, we yes. think, why didn't he just devote his life to just writing that and nothing else? Oh, well, we allow him to write horror as well, but uh, uh, you know, you just wish he'd, he'd written 20 Quatermass stories, not just the, the four. Yeah, yeah. Um, although I, I, I love the fact, unlike um, most uh, kind of significant sci fi kind of horror franchises and um, you know to take uh, examples like doctor who or star trek they start off being created by someone and then other people take over whereas quatermass is entirely nigel neal he wrote every story in multiple versions yes. um and and you know even up to the radio serial which was made in the 90s he wrote that um mm. and there's never really been any i mean he, he i don't think he would have willingly handed over the mantle to anyone um and the, there haven't really been anyone else who's done it and i think that the consistency of voice in it is is kind of a great appeal to me even though it is a shame that there's only four stories but i i, I think what you hinted out there is that it is kind of important to to read these and bear in mind that the the time that they were written and the fact that tv was being invented you know it's not just the first major tv science fiction serial it's also the first it's the beginning really of television drama because as you say and i'm not the first person to say this either um you know 
TV dramas before this point were basically radio plays with cameras pointed at them. Mm. But but here Nigel Neal is inventing how television drama works and and kind of realizing that it's not radio but it's not film either it's not theater it's a different thing it's something in between and kind of working out what that is and he takes that knowledge to his other dramas and his other creations like 1984 and like later on like the um Wuthering Heights and the Entertainer and things like that and 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 in a way you can say that every by the 60s, all the other TV dramatists were basically doing what he was doing. They kind of conformed to that template. Oh, I, I, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. Um, yeah, because, again, I don't think we've mentioned, but, I mean, the, the, the Quatermass TV series went out live, didn't they, in the 1950s? I mean, they were like stage plays. When you sat down and watched it on television, there was actually an actor yeah. in the studios in London you know, saying the lines, and you know, it, it was it was actually live. Um, and of course, there have been constraints there how we would, could have written the scripts. I mean, you couldn't have had, you know, like a, a character jumping into a car and there'd be a car chase, unless they actually spliced in some some film which they'd shot earlier, which they did to a certain extent. You know, that's some film inserts. But basically, it was yeah, a bunch of people in a room with a couple of cameras doing the story and it was live i mean there's quite a lot of film inserts in quatermass and the pit and i think you can see that they'd learned by that point that you could do that you could seamlessly cut to a filmed insert sequence if you had a bit of an action scene but at the time of the quatermass experiment they didn't even know that so that's why the, the script kind of sticks mainly to the studio and that, yes. that kind of cramped studio as you say and it's it's often characters describing things which the audience doesn't see again kind of the legacy of, of radio drama with the Quatermass experiment um, that is a story which largely exists as a script um, I, in the sense that there's only t two episodes of the TV version left uh, the film is very different there was also a later kind of remount of it that the BBC made in 2005, but that was updated to a modern setting. So again, it's not very like the original script. So in a way, the, the Nigel Neal script of the Quatermass experiment is the only true version. And it's the only... Um, the, the only one which has his uh, gives us a real sense of his original intended ending for the story, which was changed for the movie version. Um, and I, I think lots of people have had trouble reading that script, and because we can't look at the episode as transmitted, thinking, how would they have filmed this? What, what would it have been like? Because basically... In the movie, um, the monster which Victor Caroon transforms into is just destroyed, basically. They electrocute it. But in, in the TV series, uh, Quatermass kind of goes to it and implores it to kill itself. He mm. kind of appeals to the humanity within it. Um, I just wondered... How you, what do you feel about that ending, having read the script, which I never have, I have to admit? Um, and can you see it on TV, or do you think it kind of maybe is something which works best on the page? Can you imagine it being done for television? That's it. I, I suppose it'll be the, the question we never can answer, you know, what it'll be. Well, perhaps we can find somebody who, who, who remembers seeing the original 
series back in, well, in 1953. Um, but yeah, I mean, because, well, you, you've got the first two episodes still exist. So, you know, you, obviously you could watch those now on YouTube and see, get a feel for what the story was about and what it was like. Uh, you can read the script. I'm not sure if the scripts are available now, but I think you can pick them up second hand fairly, fairly yes, easily. Yes, you can. They were only published in two imprints, I think, but but they are available uh, on on the internet. I've had a look. You can find copies of them, and I, I might well be getting myself a copy of Quatermass Experiment to finally read it. And, and yeah, uh, uh, and, and again, I mean that there's no audio recording of the the original TV series, unlike the like the Doctor Who's, where I think the, the even though they've got you know, there's masses of missing episodes and missing um, series, at least they've got uh, audio tracks for, for I think most of the Doctors that uh, might be missing on video. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, I think it was the the, the constraints that Nigel Neal uh, was under with the you know the, the actual production because when you, you you read his little introduction to the Quatermass experiment, he says that um, they'd even begun filming the. Oh, in fact, the, the first episode had already been broadcasting. We're still writing the uh, the last episode. I, I know the, it is a, a wonderful idea that the idea that you can talk the monster into killing itself, which is something which has been done, I think, many times since. I think the, the, the Star Trek episodes, there's, there's one where Captain James T. Kirk, I think, speaks to the, the all-powerful destructive robot probe and, and, and persuades that to... to switch itself off Kirk's specialty is destroying computers with the power of words yeah yes. yeah yeah so I think it's been done many times I mean certainly the the ending of the Clitmas experiment I mean it was it's taking place in the um uh the, the, well, the cathedral in Westminster Abbey yes which I, th I think would have been very potent for viewers as well because the um the, the Queen's coronation which took place in Westminster Abbey had only been shown live on tv just a few weeks before and, that, and again that was a big landmark um uh, you know for, for british tv you know to actually show that and then for viewers just a matter of weeks later perhaps four or five weeks later to see you know the, the, the monster in westminster abbey uh, yes which, which apparently was something that nigel neal had to mock up um with his wife Right. The budget ran out, so they, I think they, you know, they just get a, a, a big glove and, and stick bits of foliage on, and then it, and then they yeah. had it sort of a, a seemingly crawling up the, uh, you know, the the walls inside the, the building. Uh, yeah, I think they had a, like a photographic blow up of Westminster Abbey, and Nigel Neal crawled, made his hands crawl up it. That was how they did it. Um, again, I would have loved to see that. Um, it's it's incredible the. Uh, uh, the inventiveness that, that goes into it and the minimal resources and also I think the fact that Neil um, set the climax in Westminster Abbey again shows his quick awareness of what uh, of how to capitalise on the fact that the medium he's working in is television and how to take something uh, a setting that the the TV audiences would have recognised, but then mm. subvert it and put the monster oh, in. Oh yeah, I think it, yeah, it would have been a almost like a punch to the jaw when the, the, the viewers saw it. Because again, hardly anybody had watched television before 1953. It was something that was was, was very rare. And then of course, they, in 1953, as Neil says, it was a time of wild optimism. You know, Sir Edmund Hillary had climbed up Everest. 
Um, Britain had got its first jet airliner. Um, Britain had got its own rocket program in Australia, uh, firing up the Blue Street rockets. And it looked as though that Britain was on this threshold of, of wonderful things happening. And I suppose Nigel Neal was saying, you know, don't, you know, don't be too optimistic. There's still, still problems. And I think a lot of his, his films have that subtext of saying, oh, yeah, wonderful things are happening, but be careful what, what lurks underneath because it could all go badly wrong. Yeah, but yeah, very much so. I was admit, while you were, um, <laughs> were talking, Dan, sorry, my eyes straight away, because I, I looked at the, the end of the, the script where Quatermass does talk the creature into uh, self-destruction. Uh, Quatermass uh, talks to the, the astronaut, which had become this uh, sort of like plant-like creature, and he's saying, you will, and he's, he's trying to talk to the, the astronaut that's still some you know the residue of the, the the man's mind that's still contained in this monster now and it is in Quatermass says you will overcome this evil without you it cannot exist upon the earth it can only know by means of your knowledge understand through your understanding so i think basically going to Quatermass has recognized that um that the, the astronaut this poor doomed astronaut who's become this plant-like creature is, is also a portal for the evil alien. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Quatermass persuades the astronaut to destroy itself just through the power, well, destroy himself just through the power of thought. Because um, Quatermass has recognised that something usually evil will come through this, this doorway that's been created in a sense through this astronaut's body and which will presumably result in everybody being infected by this, this plant to becoming these strange plant-like creatures so yeah it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant ending in the script and, and works well in the script but I, th I think for most tv viewers a good way to destroy a monster is simply have a big explosion <laughs> isn't it yes I, you, you I, want the ray gun you want the explosion you know some some appeal to the monster's residual humanity is yeah it's, it's very elegant and, and wonderful, but is it good television? I, I think that that's what uh, Hammer would have felt. They obviously thought, you know, let's go for the exciting action ending. But what I realised when you were reading that is that it's a great speech for an actor to deliver. And again, it's Neil recognising the options that he has before him in terms of the medium. And he's got a small studio and he's got a great actor. Give him a big speech. That's your climactic ending. Yes. And, you know, well, why not? That's Definitely. Um, and it would, would work. I mean, you could just imagine, you know, the, the camera slowly going into close-up on the actor's face as he's speaking. And, you know, presumably the actors play, perform Shakespeare on the boards of, uh, you know, London theatres. So wonderful diction, wonderful voice and can speak with such beautiful conviction that you know would be i think i suppose you know, you know i think most viewers would get it you know that you know, that the that bernard quatermass had they, they were so eloquent and, and uh you know would be able to persuade the creature um to you know to, to, to self-destruct or, or the human part of the creature to self-destruct and thus you know destroy the alien life form yeah yeah uh, no it's great and um, uh, listeners who, who would like a taste of an actor 
doing that. Um, you do you do get a sort of version of that scene in the 2005 uh, production that Jason Fleming played Quatermass in. But also, the if you listen to the uh, 1996 radio series, the Quatermass Memoirs, um, then you. You, you don't hear that sequence, but you do get Professor Quatermass played by Andrew Keir, um, who's reprising the role from the film of Quatermass in the Pit, reminiscing about that moment, and he does talk about it in very eloquent, kind of haunted terms. I remember him saying, um, I stepped into that, mid, into the midst of that awful mass of growth, and I mm. appealed to them. Um, I appealed for their death, for the astronaut's death, and it's very kind of powerfully done. Um, so that's worth a listen. I think that's available to Audible listeners, if, if anybody is a member of Audible. It's definitely out there. It's been released by the BBC, so I recommend that. So um, my, my, fin- my very final question to you, Simon, then, on, on these scripts is, do you have a favourite out of the Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2 and Quatermass in the Pit, which is your favourite story? Yeah. In, in some ways, a hard decision because I'd, I'd say my favourite version of Quatermass is the BBC TV version of Quatermass and the Pit. You know, that's just such a magnificent, incredible, you know, tight of a story and a production. So that's definitely my favourite to watch on television. But for the scripts, I, I'd go with the Quatermass experiment because it was the first one. It, it, it was groundbreaking. Nigel Neal was an amazing pioneer in television, and and this. And the first Quatermass story, Quatermass experiment, was the first proper, perhaps, TV production in Britain. You know that broke so much ground and basically created TV as we know it today. And also, I'd say it's my favourite because um, only two episodes exist, and the only way to actually enjoy the story is to sit down with the script and to and to read it. And it's a, a wonderful read. And I'd, I'd certainly recommend, you know, grab it if you can, sit down and, and just enjoy reading the script. I think, you, you know, you won't be disappointed. Brilliant. I think I shall take that recommendation on and I'm going to have to get hold of the Quatermass experiments and, and finally read it. That'll be great. Well, thank you so much, Simon. That's been a fascinating uh, look at, at those three stories. Thank you so much for your time on this and, uh, and you'll be coming back to the podcast in the future talking about other things thank you for inviting me to take part i really enjoyed it thank you that's brilliant thank you simon all right until next time my friend bye 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 that chat it's not the last you'll be hearing from simon he'll be back soon talking about nigel neal's other quatermass writing and that will be in the next episode that we release of this podcast 
It only remains for me to thank Simon very much for his generous time and for his enthusiasm for his subject, which was genuinely contagious. And also to thank you, dear listener, for listening and being so patient with us. We'll be back soon. I just don't know exactly when. All right. Bye-bye. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by T.D. Velasquez. With special guest, Simon Clark. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at andnowpod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at And Now Podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash And Now Podcast. And now the podcast stops.
Ian Winterton. Kirsty Warrow, Stella Gaynor.
Kirsty Warrow. Stella Gaynor. Kirsty Warrow. Ian Winterton. Stella Gaynor.
Stella Gaynor, and Stella Gaynor. Ian Winterton, Kirsty Warrow, and T.D. Velasquez.
Kirsty Waddo, Ian Winterton, Howard Whittock, with special guests.
and T.D. Velasquez, and Stella Gaynor, with special guest, Spider Dan. With special guest, Simon Clark. Rob Stuart Hudson and Howard Whittock, and T.D. Velasquez, and Stella Gaynor, with special guest, with special guests, Ben Dobbs, Sean Mason, Tim McPartridge, Steve Timms, Spider Dan, Dave Moore, Daniel Butt, Gemma Taylor, Gareth Kavanagh, Steve Kane, Peter Slater, Tim Shaw, Luke Richards, and Ian Winterton.
with special guest with special guests Martin Berwick Caroline Monroe Madeline Smith Anthony DP Mann Charlie Steeds Bry Troyer Silas Dahl Ruben Pla Rob Savage Gemma Hurley Stephen Do that again <coughs> Stephen Volk Ryan Kruger Simon Clark Ramsey Campbell David Edwards Dirk Maggs Gemma Moore Tim Leban Julian Simpson With special guests, Dr. Rebecca Williams and Dr. Laurie Hitchcock Morimoto, Martin Bezik, Dr. Stella Gaynor.